0: Tonight I want to finish off the series of talks that I've been giving here over this past month of July about the five aggregates of clinging. The five dimensions or planes that cover most, if not all, of our experience and which the Buddha particularly encouraged us to pay attention to and to learn about and to come to understand in order to be free from them, free of them, uh, not rid of them, but to be able to stop hanging on to them, clinging to them in ways that cause us suffering. So tonight we've come to uh, the last of the aggregates, the aggregate of consciousness, vijnana, vijnana, which is a subject I take up with a little bit of trepidation, Uh, Because consciousness is such a loaded word in English. You know, there's a lot of the Western philosophical tradition, religious tradition, uh, modern psychology um, that's very interested in, uh, concerned with consciousness, uh, what it does, how it functions, what is it, where does it come from, all of those kinds of big questions that we like to entertain as human beings. And there's been a lot of thought about it, a lot written over the centuries, a lot of really fascinating modern research going on into consciousness. And even if we're not philosophers or psychologists or uh, neuroscientists, although some of us probably are, <laughs> we tend to absorb um, ideas, you know, a lot of Western ideas and attitudes, about this topic, just from the culture, from being immersed in it, being immersed in ideas about it. But the Buddha's teachings about the realm of consciousness, that the, the dimension, the aggregate of consciousness, are, are really quite simple, they're really quite straightforward, um, disarmingly so, I think, for many of us today, uh, deceptively simple. But I suspect that this was also probably so uh, for many people living in the time of the Buddha himself, thousands of years ago, uh, in that axial age where there was intense uh, interest and uh, inquiry and scrutiny going on around many different philosophical questions, religious, spiritual issues... Um, There were many different ideas and theories and teacher teachings circulating around about uh, the nature of self, the nature of existence, the nature of consciousness. Um, And in the midst of all this, I think the Buddha's approach even then must have seemed uh, quite different um, and possibly somewhat (laughs) prosaic—not really, really all that exciting compared to a lot of the theories and the ideas and practices that were circulating at the time. This is an excerpt from uh, The Questions of Melinda, uh, which is said to be the record of a conversation between uh, King Melinda, who may have been the uh, historical King Menander I, who was a a Hellenistic Indo-Greek king who ruled an area in what's now uh, the Punjab. Uh, from several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, between him and a monk named Nagasena, about various points of the Dharma. So the king puts various, uh, very pointed questions to the Venerable Nagasena, who then proceeds to answer them. So one of the questions that the king asked was uh, Venerable Nagasena, what is the distinguishing characteristic of consciousness? To which the monk replied, The distinguishing characteristic of consciousness, your majesty, is cognizing. Uh, The king followed up on this, not too surprisingly, (laughs) and said, well, give me an analogy. So this is the one that the Venerable Nagasena gave him. He said, just as a city superintendent sitting at the crossroads in the middle of the city could see a person coming from the eastern direction, could see a person coming from the southern direction, could see a person coming from the western direction, and could see a person coming from the northern direction, so indeed does a person cognize with consciousness a form they see with the eye. Cognize with consciousness a sound they hear with the ear. Cognize with consciousness a scent they smell with the nose. Cognize with consciousness a taste they savor with the tongue. Cognize with consciousness a touch they feel with the body. And cognize a consciousness with consciousness and mental activity they cognize with the mind. Just so, your majesty, the distinguishing characteristic of consciousness is cognizing. To which the king replied, You are very clever, venerable Nagasena. (laughs) Which was how he replied to most of Nagasena's responses. (laughs) So there's this image of consciousness and the simile. Uh, sitting still at the crossroads of the mind, at the intersection of all of the senses, and just seeing. Here comes a sight, here comes a sound, there's a smell, there's a taste, a sensation in the body, a thought in the mind, and so on. So most of the time, uh, consciousness is described in uh, this scintillating way in the teachings. There's many places where this kind of passage occurs. And what is consciousness? It is these six spheres of consciousness. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. This is called consciousness. That's the the formula we get over and over again in the teachings for what is consciousness. So this is what the Buddha is referring to. It's just consciousness of sensory input just consciousness of sensory stimulation, which includes obviously all of the, the, the physical senses, physical sensory stimulation, and also the internally generated uh, sensory stimulation, uh, all of the mental input, the mental activity. So all of the other mental aggregates, it includes Vedana, sensations of pleasure and pain, it includes uh, Sanya, all of our perceptions, And includes all of the sankaras, everything else that goes on in the mind. So all of that mental activity is the the mental stimulation, the stimulation of the the mental sense. From a subjective point of view, all of that mind-generated activity is just like any other sensory input. So a thought arises in the mind and is detected by consciousness. That general process is really not seen as being any different from... The sound arising in the room and the ear detects it, or a scent arises in the dining room and the nose detects it. The Pali word that the Buddha used for the aggregate of consciousness is vijnana, uh, which has some similarities with the word uh, vipassana, and that they both have that vi, the, the v prefix on them, um, which means something like. Distinctive in English. It has a similar sense from what I can gather. So, distinctive in English, it can mean distinctive in the sense of like different, you know, distinguishing different features, or it can also mean special. (laughs) So, it seems to have both of those senses, and they both apply in relationship to vipassana and vijnana. So, vipassana, the vipassana part is just seeing. That's fairly straightforward. So, vipassana. It's kind of like distinctive seeing, you know, it's it's seeing the different characteristics of things very distinctly, differently, from how we usually do, and also in kind of a special way. And with vijnana, jnana is just knowing, it's related to our English word knowledge, or to know, it comes from the same root. Um, That's why we have that silent K on the front. (laughs) In Pali it's jnana. Um, So vinyana is is distinctive knowing, knowing the the input of these different sense sense spheres, different sense spaces, and knowing them in a special way, in this way that makes us conscious. So this level of consciousness that the Buddha is referring to when he speaks about it, of just really bare sentience... (laughs) It's so simple and it's so ubiquitous. It's very difficult to actually get words around it. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, I saw at one place, described it as the light of awareness. The light of awareness. So that's, that's not quite as precise as I usually like for definitions, but it kind of captures the, the essence of it. Quite a few of us here practice uh, Chittanupasana, the mindfulness of the mind, As a style of meditation based on the third foundation of mindfulness uh, as our primary approach to meditation, as our primary technique. And the rest of us are all incorporating it to varying degrees, just being aware of what's going on in the mind, the quality of the mind. And the word citta and citta nupasana is sometimes treated as a synonym for vijnana, but it's really a bit broader. Um, so we often these days talk about chitta nupassana as resting in awareness or mindfulness of the mind, um, different ways that we translated tra- translate that, which can be confusing because uh, the word awareness is used in so many different ways <laughs> in Western vipassana. You know, we act- often get questions: What do you actually mean by awareness? Because <laughs> that teacher uses it that way, and that teacher uses it that way. But we can think of it as um, mindfulness of consciousness and its friends. So it's like consciousness with its, its crew, <laughs> its, its retinue. Um, so as we all know, it's totally possible to be conscious, but not particularly aware. <laughs> There's many, many things that we do in the course of the day, probably even here in intensive retreat, um, that we do just on autopilot by habit, by conditioning. So driving is the classic example of of this for those of us that have been driving for a while. So many times we get from point A to point B, right, the places that we go a lot and we just have no no memory, (laughs) no idea how that actually happened. We were conscious but we weren't aware. Uh, There's this one route that I always take to my son's school and if I'm taking that that one road anywhere else, (laughs) you have to be really mindful that we don't end up at a school because that's just where the programming is set to go. And we can see this happen, you know, anytime that we're kind of in the zone and playing sports or a game or doing art, music, uh, whatever it might be, that we get really concentrated in just one aspect of experience and we basically lose consciousness of other aspects. So what we usually call awareness uh, around here these days happens when consciousness gets a boost. It's got something extra going on beyond just consciousness. It gets an extra infusion from uh, an assortment of other wholesome mental factors. And I've talked about some of these already in past weeks. So as I spoke about, uh, consciousness is always accompanied by Vedana va in every moment, whether we try to make it happen or not, whether we like it or not, there's always some sense of pleasure, pain, uh, neutrality in every moment. Uh, there's always perception happening at every moment. Again, whether we like it or not, whether we try to or not, the mind is just automatically going to uh, infuse meaning into our experience based on what we've learned, what we've uh, experienced before. There's always uh, volition in every moment. There's always some kind of intentionality when we're conscious. It's it's impossible to be conscious and not have some kind of uh, volition going on in the mind. And all of those can be supports for awareness in their wholesome manifestations when they're acting in conjunction with wisdom. And there's a whole other um, host of mental qualities that that are mentioned in the suttas and in the Buddhist psychology that help to make us not just conscious of the bare sense stimulation but actually aware in a way that's clear and useful and informative and insightful. Um, so just a few of those that often come along with consciousness when we're aware. There's concentration, you know, there's attention, paying attention. There's resolution, you know, being, being uh, confident about what we're doing. There's mindfulness itself. Um, There's a bunch of factors that are called things like composure, buoyancy, pliancy, proficiency, (laughs) rectitude. All these kind of nuances of the mind that make us be uh, really present uh, and aware and not just conscious. So as we practice resting in awareness, that, that type of mindfulness, and being sensitive to the quality of the mind then we become more aware of these various filters, these various boosters that can be there with consciousness. But consciousness itself is just simply that registering of stimulation at the sense doors. So one way of thinking about this is, you know, what's the difference between us and our our friend the rock here, you know, that we love so much? Uh, It's consciousness, right? That's the difference. Um, presumably. We don't really know for sure. It is a very impressive rock. Uh, It's got some good karma to be here with us. Um, So, you know, it's not that I can make lasagna and the rock can't. It's not that I can do calculus and the rock can't, although probably those things are also true. (laughs) But it's something much more fundamental than that. Right? There's a mind here that has some knowing, some awareness of, of the world around it, whereas the rock... Uh, we think it does not. So consciousness is what opens the sense doors. It opens the sense doors so that the world can enter into the mind. Consciousness opens the sense doors so that the world can enter the mind. The mind might then do all sorts of things with the sensory stimulus. You know, it'll feel pleasure and pain... It'll uh, recognize things, it'll think about things, it might, you know, feel craving or aversion, uh, lots of things that the mind might then do with the sensory stimulation. But consciousness is just that faculty of mind that opens the door and lets the world in so that there's a, a knowing of it, just the sense of uh, here like as in, you know, here is the world, here is all of this. And the Buddha was, you know, frequently at pains to point out that this is all there is. <laughs> Just these six sense spheres, that there really isn't anything else in our worlds. This is what the world is made up for us, made up of for us. That there isn't anything else besides what we can be conscious of through our senses, through the physical senses and through the sense of the mind. This is a, an important discourse, a famous discourse um, from the Samyutta Nikaya called The All. Once at Savati, the Buddha addressed the assembled monks and said, What is the All? The eye and forms, the ear and sounds, the nose and odors, the tongue and tastes, the body and tactile objects, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called The All. If anyone should say, having rejected this all, I shall make known another all, that would be a mere empty boast on their part. If they were questioned, they would not be able to reply satisfactorily, and further they would meet with vexation. For what reason? Because that would not be within their domain. What an interesting sutta, huh? Very thought-provoking. You know, the Buddha is really saying here, this is it. This is our world as human beings. You know, this, this world of the six sense spheres, anything else, can't be more than conjecture, uh, which is part of the sphere of the mind. <laughs> it's a mental object. Uh, as human beings, we have a great capacity to construct intellectual models of things that are be- beyond our direct uh, experience, but in reality, those things are all mental constructs. They're all sankara. My son these days is very into animals. He's been learning about the different kinds of animals in the world. He's really, he really likes to go out and kind of discover new ones in the area where we live, dig around in the creek and the mud and stuff. And um, he likes to read in books and learn about animals that live in different parts of the world that he finds very uh, odd and entertaining, you know seeing the kinds of creatures that live in other places, so I signed him up for some uh, nature camps this summer. Thank goodness for the Audubon Society. and he 's been going out for uh, nature hikes around here around this area and seeing uh, lots of different kinds of animals and birds and bugs and fish, things that live in the creeks here, different kinds of things that what we have. Um, he was very entertained by the porcupine that they found one day. Uh, one day they saw a weasel. He liked that also um, and he 's at that age where he um, he just soaks up information like a sponge. you know his little brain doesn 't have a whole lot in it yet, <laughs> so it just <laughs> absorbs everything like this so he 's been coming home with uh, with all sorts of various factoids. you know did you know this? Did you know that? Um, and the other day, apparently, they caught a garter snake and brought it back for a little bit of, you know, up close and personal time. And he was telling me, uh, "Did you know that snakes can see heat?" I was like, "Oh, wow, that's so cool!" So, you know, we talked about the rainbow and what is heat. You know, it's 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 infrared radiation, infrared light. It's light that's higher than the red. You know, if you could see the the light above the red. Um, So then we talked about some other animals that have senses that that we don't have as humans, um, about how birds can see the magnetic field of the earth. That kind of blew his little mind (laughs) and and other things. There's there's animals that can hear sounds we can't hear, animals that can see things that we can't see, animals that can sense electricity and magnetism, um, which we can't. And... uh, you know, being a good Dharma teacher took a little bit of advantage of that moment to offer a little teaching on the sixth sense fears. <laughs> you know, what are the things that you, can, that you can sense? What are the things that we can sense, that human beings can sense? And he had to think about it a little bit, you know, but just kind of going through that, you know, even at that age, you know, he kind of knows. So there's, we can see things, we can hear things, we can smell things, you know, and going through all of the things that make up our world, our all. So that's pretty much it. Although the Buddha did, did give one uh, important exception, which is Nibbana, <laughs> which I'm not going to speak about tonight. But so there is this, you know, this, this other mystery of Nibbana that lies outside of the all, doesn't pertain to the all. But as far as ordinary reality, <laughs> as far as ordinary conditioned reality goes, this is it. The six sense spheres are really the only game in town. So that's what we're conscious of. And there's no consciousness without sensory stimulation. So no consciousness without something that we're conscious of. They go hand in hand. So consciousness and stimulus are inseparable. They're like two sides of a coin. We kind of can look more to one side, look more to the other side, but they're always together. There's no way to pry them apart. They're mutually mutually interdependent. This is another snippet from the Samyutta Nikaya. The Buddha said, Were someone to say I will describe a coming, a going, an arising, a passing away, a growth, an increase, or a proliferation of consciousness, apart from form, feeling, perception, and fabrications, that would be impossible. So no consciousness apart from the other aggregates. It doesn't arise in isolation. So what we tend to notice in our meditation, if we're paying attention to the mind and noticing awareness, is what the Buddha called contact. It's actually how we tend to become aware of consciousness and practice, which is the experience of the sense stimulus uh, connecting with or contacting, striking uh, sense consciousness. And some of you... Uh, I know I have been noticing or working with this in your practice in various ways. The sense of uh, consciousness receiving the stimulus, receiving the stimulation from the world around us. It's very easy to get a sense of this when we just open our eyes. It's really quite simple. So, with the eyes closed, there's not much visual stimulation, uh, though there's still some if the eyes are working. But then when we open them, there's this pretty dramatic contact with the visual field. All those lights and colors and shapes come flooding in. Um, So we may not be able to pick up on the seeing consciousness in and of itself, um, but we can definitely get that sense of suddenly being aware, being conscious, that there's a large amount of visual stimulation suddenly uh, contacting the mind. So could, you could try it now if you want, just a little experiment, if you want to close the eyes. Um, so I'm going to do a countdown from three, and when I say contact, open the eyes and see if you can get a sense of all the light, the color, uh, the shapes hitting the eye consciousness. Are you ready? <laughs> three, two, one, Contact. It's an interesting experiment. I mean, suddenly everything comes back. Suddenly that world is there. It wasn't there before. Suddenly it's there. It's the same thing uh, with sound. you know Many of you have been, have been noticing how the sounds just hit ear consciousness, right? It strikes the ear consciousness, and there's contact. So at times we may be more focused on the stimulation itself, on the quality of what we're seeing, or on the quality of what we're hearing, the sound, the sight. But at times we might notice the other side of the coin more. It might become more obvious, that knowing, that registering, that sensing of the experience. Sometimes uh, we take the kids out to the Blue Ridge Mountains and we visit the caves there. You know, there's, if you haven't been in the mid-Atlantic region, there's amazing caves under the, the limestone formations that make up the mountains there. And usually part of the cave tour is the uh, total darkness stop if any of you have ever, ever been on one of these cave tours. So they they find a place that's really deep down in the caverns. It's kind of enclosed, so there's no... They might even put doors or something, so there's no... None of the lights from other places in the cave are coming in. And then they turn out the lights. <laughs> and it's the most total darkness, right, that you, you've ever seen in your life. It's like complete pitch darkness. That's really fascinating. Um, so they're still seeing consciousness there because there's there's... Consciousness of that blackness, but it's like the least visual stimulation you're ever going to have, you know, if you have functioning eyes. And then they turn the lights back on, and you're really hit by that contact, you know. It's really dramatic. It's a very good practice opportunity. <laughs> It'd be nice if we had a cave here. <laughs> our caves here aren't that dark, <laughs> so we can only really be conscious of the stimulation of our senses in this present moment. So another you know, kind of interesting illustration is that we're only seeing what's in front of our eyes right now to the extent that they work. You know, our, our consciousness is going to vary. Some of us, for example, don't see certain colors. You know, some of us are never going to have blue consciousness <laughs> or green consciousness. The eyes just don't pick up on it. Some of us have limited eye consciousness, if so the eyes don't work so well. And we can only see what's right you know, in the, the visual field so right now, whatever's behind us, we're not conscious of it, right? <laughs> we kind of know it's there. You know, I kind of know that the stuff is behind me, but unless I turn around and look, I'm not conscious of it. I'm conscious of this. That's all that's in consciousness. For some of us, we might have had the experience of... Um, losing our sense of smell or taste. I feel like sometimes those are the, the clearest example of the loss of sense consciousness um, because it can happen, you know, if we're ill or, or if we're injured in a certain way or if we're on certain medications. Sometimes it happens that it seems like we really do completely lose, right, the sense of taste or smell at times. Um, so, so seeing and hearing really never completely go away. You know, we we notice that when we pay attention. Even if the eyes are closed, there's still light coming in through the eyelids. If we pay attention to it, there's still consciousness of subtle seeing. Same thing with the ears. Even in the silence here, or if we put on, like, noise-canceling headphones, you know, we we hear the the rushing of sound in the ears, the the sounds made just by the air, the circulation of the blood, if the ears are working but the, I've had some interesting experiences where I really honestly felt like I couldn't taste anything, right? Which makes eating a very interesting experience. Um, there's just not the tasting consciousness. You know, I know the food should have a flavor, I have some ideas about what the flavor should be, but it's just not happening. There's just not that consciousness because the, the sense door is not opening. It's not working. And then we all have the the obvious experience of sleep. What is sleep? It's unconsciousness, by definition. So we all have this experience that we fall asleep, hopefully at night, but whenever we fall asleep, and it all goes away. The body goes away, at least a lot of the time. There may be some limited consciousness at times of the body, but mostly not there. The mind mostly goes away, although we may at times have some consciousness there as well, through dreams. Um, But really, a lot of the time, when consciousness is just not operative. Then we wake up in the morning, and it's back again, if we're lucky. So going through all of this, (laughs) and going through all these examples, and all the different sense spheres, you know, cataloging their senses, their objects, their contact... um, That can all get kind of tedious, (laughs) Um, and it also may seem kind of obvious, but one reason I spent a little bit of time on this is this is exactly how the Buddha presented it, right? Those of you that have spent time looking into the suttas, you know, this is what he does over and over again, this extensive cataloging of there's the sense object, there's the sense base, the contact between between the two gives gives rise to consciousness, you know, over and over again. So it was clearly important to the Buddha uh, to bring this whole subject of consciousness very down to earth, that's the impression that I get reading those teachings, um, to approach this topic in a very, uh, very matter of fact and very thorough and what was probably for his time a very scientific way, a very objective way. And I think that's because it's so easy to get worked up about consciousness. <laughs> We tend to make a lot out of consciousness. Um, for those of us that are, are of an introspective philosophical bent, and for many seekers and teachers in the Buddha's time as well, when we think about consciousness, and even more when we directly observe consciousness, we tend to come up against the, the great mystery of it, right? the mystery of Consciousness. Or at least, you know, I do anyway, when I really connect with uh, consciousness, um, it's amazing. You know, we all walk around through our lives not thinking about it, that we're sentient beings. <laughs> but when we actually stop and, and become aware, like, here's this world, and there's knowing of it. It's, it's incredible. It's awe-inspiring. It's awesome in the genuine sense of it. <laughs> And the mind goes so easily from that sense of, of awe and mystery into questions, right? What is going on here? What is this about? Uh, why is it happening? What does it mean? How does it happen? And those are the big questions that have you know, occupied humanity very much throughout our history. But the Buddha taught you know, in this very matter-of-fact way, that these kinds of questions are not actually useful for our happiness. <laughs> All of that questioning of the mystery. You know, it's natural to have that sense of the mystery, but the questioning of it is not actually going to lead us to happiness. And actually quite the opposite, right? He, he said that that line of inquiry, going down those roads, into those mysteries, uh, is going to make us crazy. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> That you know our lot as human beings is that there are things that are hidden from our view. There are things that our intellects can't fathom, and it's just not productive to engage with on an intellectual level. So his approach is that rather than seeking refuge in ideas and concepts and trying to explain the mystery, trying to dissect it, trying to make sense of it intellectually, um, instead to seek refuge within the mystery just right here, as it is, that we don't need to solve the mystery of consciousness, we don't need to solve the mystery of being, of sentience, in order to be happy, which is a good thing, because we can't anyway, (laughs) or at least that's what the Buddha said. And this was very much the opposite of how other different spiritual schools, uh, sects, religions were relating to consciousness, so many of which effectively deify consciousness uh, one way or the other, you know, as a way of settling the mystery, creating some certainty about it. Well, this is what it really is, or that is what it really is. Interpreting it as our true self, or some aspect of our soul, uh, or, or part of maybe a universal self, or a universal consciousness you know, these kinds of ideas still are very uh, widespread within religious spiritual traditions of our day. And, you know, there's, there's some reason for that. Because at first glance, consciousness uh, does seem more stable, more consistent than other aspects of experience. It may even seem unchanging uh, because it only has one characteristic. The characteristic of consciousness is consciousness. <laughs> it only has one flavor. It only has one thing that it does. It knows in this very elemental, basic way. It's conscious. It's the only thing that consciousness does. So if we think about the other aggregates... Um, Moments of experiencing the body rupa may include all sorts of things: many different sensations of of mass, of temperature, of movement, of lightness, of stillness, all sorts of things. Moments of experiencing vedana, moments of experiencing vedana may include all sorts of different degrees, intensities, varieties of that. Moments of experiencing perception can include recognizing all sorts of different types of things, all sorts of different uh, perceptions. And then the sankharas, of course, you know, the things that go on in our mind can include, you know, a seemingly infinite <laughs> range of different objects that arise there, experiences that arise there. But every moment of consciousness has exactly that same quality, the quality of consciousness. The only variety, really, is uh, which sense sphere it's connected with what it's picking up on, which is maybe why the Buddha emphasized that so often. So when we look at vinyana from this perspective, it really seems stable. It could seem unchanging. So we might come to the conclusion that consciousness itself might be a resting place, might be a refuge, that somehow it's independent of the other changing phenomena that it's conscious of. One of the most interesting things I find in observing consciousness uh, is that it behaves a lot like light, light being another great mystery that we still don't comprehend. So if you remember back to uh, your high school science class, you might have learned that light can behave like a wave or like a particle, or it can appear like a wave or like a particle, depending on how we're uh, measuring it and how we're observing it. So it can seem like uh, a very continuous flowing wave or it can seem like a stream of very discrete particles of energy. So at first glance, consciousness seems to have this very continuous, flowing, stable, consistent quality or characteristic of consciousness. That's often how we first notice it. But then as concentration gets stronger and as wisdom gets stronger and we start to observe consciousness with the perspective of insight, actually seeing things more as they really are, then its impermanent nature starts to come into view. We start to see that it really is momentary. It really is impermanent, just like all the other aggregates, just like all of the sense experiences that we're conscious of. The consciousness actually has exactly that same quality of impermanence. Once we get that, then we know for ourselves that there really isn't anything special about consciousness on a meaningful level. It's coming, it's going, it's changing, just like everything else, and dependent on everything else, interdependent with everything else. So the Buddha took this very systematic, very scientific, very down-to-earth approach with regard to awareness of consciousness. Same as with everything else. You know, just what is it in this moment? The moment of consciousness of something in the body, consciousness of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, etc. The Buddha said, "...consciousness is inconstant, changeable, and of a nature to become otherwise. The necessary causes and conditions for the arising of consciousness are inconstant, changeable, and of a nature to become otherwise." Having arisen in dependence on inconstant causes and conditions, how could consciousness be constant? So even consciousness is not anything that we can count on. It's just another dimension, just another plane of experience. And trying to hold on to it, wanting to, to go on and on and on, wanting to be forever conscious, is futile, because it will arise and it will pass just like everything else. But perhaps more than anything else, we tend to identify with consciousness. We tend to cling to it. Those of us that have been at this for a while and seen something of the impermanence of the other aggregates, this is sometimes the last frontier of clinging. You know, the body, we tend to see at some point, yeah, I really hope this isn't me. <laughs> because it's really a mess and it's not getting any better as time goes on. With thoughts, you know, we see how they come and they go and the content changes and, you know, they're really impermanent, fleeting. Same with emotions, pleasure, pain. Um, It's easier to get that, that those things aren't us. But the knowing, the experiencing, um, the perception, the misperception of a knower, an experiencer, Connected with those is often the last place where the sense of self hangs on. This is a little verse from a sutta called The Burden. At Savati, once the Buddha said to the assembled monks, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the casting off of the burden. Listen and pay close attention. A burden indeed are the five aggregates, and the carrier of the burden is the person. Taking up the burden in the world is stressful, casting off the burden is bliss having cast off the heavy burden and not taking on another, pulling up craving along with its root. One is free from craving, totally unbound. Which is easier said than done, of course. It's a long process of uncovering all of the ways, both obvious and subtle, that we identify with the aggregates, that we cling to them feeling like this is my body, my pleasure, my pain, my story, my history, my understanding, my practice. This is an excerpt from Middlemarch by George Eliot, the great uh, Zen master. She wrote, Your pure glass or extensive surface of polished steel made to be rubbed by a housemaid will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions. But place now against it a lighted candle as the center of illumination, and lo, the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles around that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of a concentric arrangement. It's light falling with an exclusive optical selection. So ignorance is the candle. (laughs) It's what makes it look like everything. All of the aggregates are arranged in nice, neat, concentric circles around me. Uh, Whereas wisdom is seeing that really all the scratches are going every which way indiscriminately. And that that alignment around me, the circling around me, is really an illusion. The more we see that, the more the heart can relax and let go of hanging on to that illusion. Uh, We don't actually have to do the letting go. We can't. Wisdom does that. We just have to do the seeing. We just have to do the discovering of what's really going on there. Which is not trivial. Um, you know, if someone came up to us and said, set that blah blah blue blah that you're carrying down on the table over there, what would we do? You know, we don't know. We don't know what the blah blah blue blah is. Um, and it's the same in practice. <laughs> this is very much what goes on in practice. You know, we hear the teachings that say let go of attachment, abandon clinging, give up craving. But they might as well be saying, you know, let go of the blah, 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 you know, abandon blah, 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 <laughs> give up blah, 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 um, because we don't really understand what those words are pointing to when we've come to practice, you know, or, entire, or we don't understand them entirely either as we go along in practice. That's what practice is. It's discovering what the blah, blah, blue blah, blah is when we have to actually sit down that we call attachment, that we call clinging, that we call craving. It's discovering what those words are actually pointing to in the functioning of the mind that's, that needs to be let go of. And as we see directly different bits and pieces, different aspects, you know, as they really are in our experience of the different varieties of clinging, then we can set those down more and more. We can see, oh, I'm carrying that one and drop that one, or it drops away. And, oh, I've also got that one, that way I'm hanging on, and then that one falls away. But we can only set down what we actually understand we're carrying. So there has to be the understanding. And we don't really fully understand until we reach the very end of the path, everything that we're carrying. I'll end with this one sutta about uh, the venerable Vajira, who was a nun who lived in the time of the Buddha. And frustratingly, we don't actually know anything about her personal history. I would love to have a backstory for her, but there doesn't seem to be one even in the commentaries. But the sutta about her is very uh, well-known and very influential. It's called the Vajira Sutta. At one time, the Bhikkhuni Vajira was staying at Savati, In the morning she dressed, took her bowl and robe, and went into the town for alms. After her meal, she entered the blind men's grove and sat down at the foot of a tree to spend the rest of the day in meditation. Then Mara, hoping to arouse fear, trepidation, and terror in the Bhikkhuni Vajira, and to undermine her concentration, approached her and addressed her in this way— By whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of this being? Where has this being arisen? Where does this being cease? Then it occurred to the Bhikkhuni Vajira, Surely this is the voice of Mara, wishing to undermine my concentration. So she replied to him in this way, Why do you assume a being? Mara, have you grasped a view? This is a heap of sheer constructions, There is no being to be found here. Just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. So when the aggregates are present, there's a convention that there is a being. It's only suffering that comes to be. Only suffering that stands and falls away. Nothing but suffering comes to be, and nothing but suffering ceases. Then Mara realized, the bhikkhuni vajira knows me. And sad and disappointed, he disappeared right then and there. (laughs) So that's all we have to do. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.